If you have a Bible, turn with me to John 17. That's where we're going to be spending our time this morning. This is week three of a four-week series through John called What Jesus Prayed. And if you've been around the last couple of weeks, you've seen that we're looking at this, this what some people call the high priestly prayer, some people call the Lord's Lord's Prayer. We've, we've seen Jesus appealing to the Father for certain things. And, and by looking at it, what we see is what was really on the heart of Jesus. What was it that concerned him? What was it that he thought about? What was it that he, he woke up in the morning having that on his mind? And we've seen that it's been, it's been dense, uh, it's been deep, it's been personal, it's been powerful, and we're going to continue with a small section of uh, that prayer this morning. We do this uh, kind of weird thing as a family. It's actually not we, I mean, I'm the one who does it. Most of the things that are weird in our family, I'm the one uh, who does them, but um, I will sometimes ask my kids to, to rate a particular experience on a scale of one to ten, one being the worst, ten, I mean, one being the, yeah, worst, ten being the best. And, and so I may say to them, after we see a movie or we go to a new restaurant or we, we try a new flavor of ice cream or we get back from vacation, I would say, hey, how would you, how would you rate that? And then they, they'll tell me. And uh, that, that's not so weird, I guess, but I do apply that in other things. For example, I have said to each of my kids on occasion, how would you rate me as a dad on a scale of one to ten? Now, you have to be ready when you ask that question for the answer, right? Uh, I've gotten any, anywhere from a three and a half to a 10, depending on what mood my kids are in. Um, but it does give them a chance to share. I can say, hey, how can I improve as a, as a dad? What are some things that I can, can look at? And, and those are some good discussions. I will sometimes turn that, that rating system on them, and I'll say, hey, how happy would you say that you are on a scale of one to 10? You know, one being, of course, abject misery and 10 being just over the world, you know, excited and blissful. And that then will give us an opportunity to talk about what may be on their minds, what may be plaguing them, what, what may be weighing on them. Um, so it's, it's, I think it's a fair question. How would you, how would you answer that question? Uh, how would you rate your own happiness? Would you give yourself a six or a seven maybe? Or maybe it's a, been a really good week and you're at a nine or Maybe things are really going poorly. Maybe you say, well, you know, up until about three months ago, I would give myself a much higher rating, but I've got a lot of stress in my life, a lot of uncertainty. How would you rate your own happiness? Who would you say is the happiest person you know? Who do you think is the, maybe the, the happiest person to ever live? I want to suggest to you this morning, as we look at this little uh, section in John uh, chapter 17, that Jesus was the happiest, most joyful person to ever live. And I want to explain that in, in just a moment. Um, but what's incredible about this passage is that Jesus says he actually wants to give his joy to us. This theme of happiness or joy, it runs throughout the Scriptures. It's, it's there you know, all throughout the Old Testament, New Testament. Christians are to be characterized by happiness or, or, or joy. And sometimes I think well-meaning Christians, they try to make a distinction between happiness and joy. And they say that, that happiness is a feeling, but joy isn't. Or happiness is based on circumstances, but joy isn't. But the reality is the Bible uses words uh, that are translated happy and joy pretty interchangeably. So it doesn't it's really not, doesn't make a lot of sense to try to, to make a huge difference between the two. Happiness, of course, doesn't mean that we never feel grief 
It doesn't mean that we're never down. It doesn't mean that we never have sorrow or frustration or confusion or uncertainty. But it does mean that we live with kind of a sense of settledness, gladness. Um, We live with a sense of well-being, we could say. Again, it doesn't mean that we're always up by any stretch. It doesn't mean that we walk around with sort of plastered smiles on our faces at all. But it does mean that we're, we have a sense of, a general, generally speaking, a sense of well-being, a sense of peace and gladness. Jesus says he wants to give us his joy or happiness. So I want to look at three questions this morning. What does that mean, first of all? I think that matters. Uh, secondly, why do we need it? That is the joy of Jesus. And finally, number three, how does that work? So what does it mean? Why do we need it? And how does it work? Look at John chapter 17. We're going to cover verses uh, 13 through 19 this morning. Let me just read. The section is fairly brief. Let me read the whole thing and we'll go back and look at verses uh, separately. Jesus says, but now I am coming to you. This is Jesus talking about coming to the Father. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth, the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. See, it's a very, very dense, uh, a lot of repetition and you know, important language there. But I want you to remember, first of all, the context. This is the darkest day of Jesus' life uh, up to this point. He's in the final hours of his life on earth. It's the night that he would be betrayed by Judas, who was one of his followers. And the same night that his most passionate follower, who had pledged his everlasting devotion to Jesus... Peter would actually uh, deny Jesus. It's the night before the crucifixion when Jesus would be brutally murdered, when he would bear the wrath of God the Father for the sins of others, since Jesus himself had committed no sins. And what is Jesus doing on this very dark night? He's praying for his disciples. Verse 13, Jesus says to the Father, I'm coming to you. I mean, I'm praying to you now. I'm speaking to you now. And these things I speak in the world. Now remember, his disciples, probably much like your kids do if they're little, and my kids did when they were little, his disciples are watching him while he's praying. Their their eyes are open, they're they're listening, they're watching, they're paying attention to what he's doing. And Jesus makes reference to these things I speak in the world. What are these things? Well, they're the statements that he's already made about the way the Father guards and protects and keeps the ones that He has given Jesus. The ones that the Father has given Jesus, He will never let go. And and as if that's not comforting enough, Jesus allows His disciples and us to hear how He prays for us. Which, by the way, is not a one-time thing, and nor is it some sort of uh, generic, nonspecific thing, you know, bless them and keep them. It's very specific And we see the contents of that prayer in John 17. Now, how encouraging to know, and the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is constantly praying. How encouraging to know 
that right now Jesus is praying for you. Right now Jesus is praying for you. As some of you know from illustrations I've shared in sermons in the past, I grew up listening to all kinds of music. My parents, uh, mom especially, love music. And, but mostly as a teenager I listened to 80s and 90s rap music and gospel music. Kind of an odd combination, I know, but that's kind of what I was listening to. Uh, while my church friends were blasting uh, Sandy Patty, I don't guess you really blast Sandy Patty, you kind of allow her angelic voice to wash over you, but while they were listening to Sandy Patty, I was listening to, you know, going back and forth, listening to rap and listening to gospel music, and some of the, the people I listened to, Al Green, Aretha Franklin, Teddy Huffman and the Gems, some people you maybe have never heard of, uh, but one song that I put on repeat was by this group called the Soul Stirrers. And I don't imagine that, that you know of them, but you probably heard the name Sam Cooke, who was the lead singer of the Soul Stirs for a while. And there was a song that he sang called, Couldn't Hear Nobody Pray. And the, the lyrics went like this, I was way down a yonder in the valley by myself, and I couldn't hear nobody pray. So he's thinking about this time in his life when he is in a really bad way, and he doesn't know how he's going to move forward doesn't know where he's going to find the strength. And what really concerns him is he doesn't think that anybody's praying for him. That bothers him. He says, if only people were praying for me, I would fare much better. You ever felt like that? A few weeks ago in Reformation Sunday, we talked about the first reformer, Martin Luther, uh, and uh, his act there in 1517. Well, he was commissioned with the task of translating the New Testament into German, and there were times when Luther had some real fruitfulness, but there were times when he just languished in, in what he would call idleness and fruitlessness. And at one point, he's there in the, the Wartburg Castle in July of 1521, and he can't get anything done. And he just feels like a total failure. And here's what he writes, I should be a fire in the spirit, in reality I am a fire in the flesh with lust, laziness, idleness, sleepiness. And then he says, It is perhaps because you have all ceased praying for me that God has turned away from me. For the last eight days I have written nothing, nor prayed, nor studied, partly from self-indulgence, partly from another vexatious handicap. I really cannot stand it any longer, he says. Pray for me, I beg you. For in my seclusion here I am submerged in sins. I have to tell you, one of my greatest comforts is when someone that I know and love and trust tells me, I'm praying for you. That's so helpful to me. It, it is very uh, soul-strengthening for me, so to speak. Well, how comforting to know that Jesus prays for His disciples. He constantly prays for His disciples. He says, I'm coming to you, to the Father, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. In other words, I'm praying right now that my disciples would have my joy. So the first question I said we consider this morning is, what does that mean? Here's what it means. This is our first point. Jesus' own joy, received by us by faith and experienced in obedience, is the soul-level recognition of the Father's approval of us. So you say, that's, that's a lot, I understand, that's a mouthful, I get it, but it's so important. Jesus' own joy, which is received by us by faith and experienced in obedience, is the soul-level recognition of the Father's approval of us. 
Now, I said to you that Jesus was the most joyful person to ever live. Now, certainly he was a man acquainted with grief and sorrow, a man who, who really uh, had times of deep, deep sort of uh, soul vexation, so to speak, of sorrow, right? But there were two things that seemed, that seemed to, to constantly buoy his joy, that secured his joy. The certainty of his future glory and the present approval of the Father. Now, this is gonna, you're going to hear that more. This is going to surface again here. The certainty of his future glory and the present approval of his Father. We've seen that in this prayer. Jesus says, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world began. Jesus knows he will be glorified. In fact, the writer of Hebrews tells us that, that as he approached the cross... He did so for the joy set before him. What was the joy? It was rooted in the certainty of his future glory. So that was a huge part of his joy. Jesus' joy was also anchored in his Father's present approval of him. Remember when Jesus was baptized by John, what happened? Well, the Spirit, of course, descended on him like a dove, we're told. And then this voice booms from heaven, which says what? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is my son whom I approve. This is before, by the way, Jesus had hardly done any ministry at all. When Jesus comes out of the water at his baptism, he is enveloped by the love and approval of God the Father. And Jesus lived with that approval of the Father throughout his ministry. And he wants his disciples to live with the same approval because it will be the recognition of the Father's approval of them that actually enables and spurs their joy. If you put your faith in Jesus, you've repented of your sins, turned from your own sort of attempts to save yourself and trusted in Christ, you too are a beloved son or daughter of the Father in whom he is well pleased because of Christ. There's a psychologist up in uh, San Jose, California by the name of Madeline Levine, and she's been counseling teenagers for more than 30 years. This is kind of the specialty of her practice. Uh, she wrote a book entitled The Price of Privilege, How Parental Pressure and Material Advantage Are Creating a Generation of Disconnected and Unhappy Kids. And she talks about over the last, say, 10, 8 to 10 years, she's been coming across sort of a new type of teenager, a new type of sadness, you might say. These are, these are uh, high-achieving um, these are, these are very intelligent, bright teenagers, um, but they're still very unhappy. They're, they're independent, they're driven, they're, again, they're, they're high achievers, but they're lost and unhappy. She, is, she says, behind a veneer of achievement, these teens suffer severe emotional problems. One student typified this. She was a 15-year-old girl who was bright and personable and came from an affluent family, she had everything, at least you know, by all appearances, and yet in one of her sessions, she rolled up her sleeves and gave evidence of the way she had been harming herself. She had one word that characterized sort of her existence, according to her, and that was empty. She was empty. Now, there's a lot of factors, that there are a lot of factors that can lead to a teenager or anyone bringing harm to themselves. But here it was a sense of disapproval, constant disapproval that she lived with. 
Whatever she did was not enough. It wasn't enough to her parents. It wasn't enough to her church. It wasn't enough to her teachers. It wasn't enough to her peers. She always felt like she was disapproved. She always felt like she had never done enough. You know, we have so many things going on in our lives right now, so many questions. And I know for some of you, those questions are, maybe they're terrifying. What's the future going to hold for me? What, what job will I have? When will things return to normal? Will they ever return to normal? There's uncertainty everywhere. And yet in the midst of all this, and a lot of things that you can't know for certain, to be sure, but in the midst of all this, you can know with absolute certainty that if you are in Christ, God is for you. He's not against you. He's for you. He has prepared you, prepared for you a future glory that is certain, and He loves you and approves of you right now, this very moment in Christ. And Jesus is praying that you will know and experience that approving love, one rooted not in your faithfulness, but in the Father's unchanging character. There's no greater source of joy than to know the approval of God the Father in Christ. Of course, it doesn't mean that things, you know, we won't have dark days. It doesn't mean that we won't have doubts or feelings of uncertainty or feelings of sorrow. It doesn't mean that we'll be sort of constantly up and saying annoying things like, I'm too blessed to be stressed. It doesn't mean that you're just going to sort of be walking around on this cloud. But it does mean that we can know a certain peace, a, a supernatural calm, it does mean we can know for certain that when things go, on, when things go badly and we don't know what's on the, uh, around the corner, we can know that things will be good for us, at least in the long run, if not immediately. And that recognition of the Father's approval of us allows us to laugh, allows us to take risks, allows us to take delight in things and to celebrate what we do have and not focus on what we may lose. Now, on to the second question, why did they and we need that joy? Look at verses 14 and 16 again. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So, just as soon as Jesus prays for his disciples that they would experience that his joy would be fulfilled in them, it becomes clear why they would need it. There are three reasons, and I don't really like subpoints under points, but there are three reasons here why Jesus makes this clear. And the first one, verse 14, is that the disciples are going to be hated by the world. Jesus' disciples will be hated by the world. Remember, you may recall in Matthew 10, Jesus sends out his disciples and he says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. And he says, all men will hate you because of me. Now, it doesn't mean every single person whoever lives. After all, they did have people who would welcome them into their home and so on. But what he's saying is, out of every people, every people group, and every tongue and tribe and language, and everywhere you go, you will find people who will despise you and hate you because you belong to me and you are confessing my lordship and my salvation. So in every village that they would go, they would experience those who would hate them. And Jesus reminds them of this in his prayer. And that, by the way, hasn't really changed. Those who profess Jesus as the only true Savior and Lord, the one before whom every knee will bow, 
they're going to be increasingly hated. So if you're a follower of Christ, you, you must expect that you will be hated by some. No, God's still advancing His kingdom. He's still keeping close to Himself, those who belong to Him. But opposition to, the, to Christ and His Word will only grow. It won't lessen. So the first reason that Jesus says they're going to need His joy is because they'll be hated. Now, the second reason is that Jesus prays in verse 15, the disciples are not of this world. There was a guy, um, his name was Aurelio Barreto. He was the uh, child of Cuban immigrants who came to the United States when, when uh, Aurelio was just a boy. And he had seen so much violence and bloodshed and, and uncertainty and turmoil. He said, you know what, when he got to the United States, he said, I'm going to make a name for myself. And in fact, he promised himself that he would, be, he would become a millionaire by the time he was 30 years old. And he actually succeeded in, in, in accomplishing that. Before he turned 30, he designed and manufactured this uh, dog house that was shaped like an igloo. It's called a dog glue. This is not a joke. And uh, you, you've probably seen these, right? And he designed that, and it made him millions of dollars. And, but what he says in, in his uh, autobiography is that he actually became less fulfilled, less happy, the more accomplished that he became. Till one day he visited his daughter's uh, school, and the, and the principal of his daughter's elementary school shared Christ with him. And at that moment, he became aware of his own sinfulness and brokenness and in light of a holy God, and he put his faith in Christ. And then he turned his imagination to designing a clothing brand that would appeal to Christians and also spark uh, questions among non-Christians. The brand was called Not of This World, um, and it sold all kinds of, you know, millions and millions of products and so on. You, you see the example of it uh, behind me. So... His idea was based on, rooted in Jesus' words in John's gospel, but, but this is more than just a slogan. This is more than just, you know, something uh, to, put mer- to put on merch. Um, when the Bible uses this, this phrase, not of this world, um, it, it means something very specific. In fact, when the Bible uses the word world, it does so in a variety of uh, ways, several different connotations depending on the context. But here Jesus is talking about the world apart from Christ with its godless ideologies, philosophies, and ethic, a a realm where God's laws are hated, His church sneered, His Son rejected, His word spurned, and His mission maligned. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's saying Christians are in that world, but they're not of that world. In other words, yeah, we live in that world where people reject the things of Jesus. They, they malign the mission of the church and so on. But we're not of that world. We don't think in the same way. Now, J.I. Packer would write many years after, or a few years ago, he would say, sadly, what's happened is a lot of Christians are of the world, but they're not in it. In other words, they, they think just like the world, but they actually aren't actually engaging anybody in the world. But what Jesus is saying, yeah, you, you're in the world, but you're not of the world. And he's not saying to the Father to take them out of the world. He's simply asking that the Father would sustain them in the midst of the world's hatred by increasing their joy in Him. New Testament scholar Frederick Bruner writes, Christians live between the joy of their Lord and the hate of their world. And so Jesus prays in consecutive verses that we may be given enough of the former that we can overcome the latter. Given enough joy 
in Christ, in the Father, that we can overcome the hate. Now, there's a third reason that Jesus' disciples need his joy. In verse 15, Jesus alludes to the fact that they will be targeted by the evil one. So he prays that the Father would keep them from the evil one. You know, there, there exists a very real devil who really wants to destroy God's church and destroy his people. That's what he wants to do. Peter, the disciple who had betrayed Jesus on the same night that, that Jesus would pray this very prayer, Peter would write later, a few years later, he would say this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by the, your brotherhood throughout the world. And you have suffered, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I think there's a great misconception uh, among Christians when it comes to what we believe the devil really wants us to do, wants to do. I think what we really believe is what the, what the devil wants to do is to cause us to sin. And certainly, he delights when God's word is spurned. He delights when God's standards are, are violated. But that's not the devil's greatest goal. That's not his primary intent. He wants, us to, he wants us to come to the conclusion that we don't really need Jesus, either because we're, we're good enough on our own, or that following Jesus is not really worth the suffering. Jesus alerts his disciples to the fact that they will soon suffer. They will be hated by the world. Well, what happens during suffering is that Satan is hard at work trying to convince those who are suffering that there's, this will never lead to glory. It's pointless. It's random. There's nothing behind it. There's no God at work in it. The rejection, the ridicule, the persecution at work or at school, the rejection by our own family members, the relational turmoil, Satan wants us to believe it's not worth it. God's not doing anything good in it. There's no sovereign plan in it. Our suffering is totally random. He wants us to believe that God cannot be trusted. He's not all satisfying. He's not good. Of course, this goes all the way back to our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden. He wants us to believe that there's something else that God has kept from us that would actually bring us real joy. The approval of our peers, the pleasure of unrestrained sexual sin, whatever it is, He tempts us with these strong suggestions that God is not enough, and then he turns around and accuses us when we fall, and he says, what are you doing? How could you? God could never love you. You don't stand approved by the Father. How could you believe that God is for you after all you've done to him? The two things that Jesus wants his followers to revel in for joy is the certainty of their future glory and the present approval of the Father, the very things the evil one wants to undermine. Here Jesus prays that God will give his disciples his joy because they'll be hated by the world, they're not of the world, and they'll be targeted by the evil one. Here's our second point. As pilgrims and strangers on this earth, by which I mean the earth's philosophies and ideologies and so on, Human and spiritual opposition is inevitable, but it will not destroy us. Not ultimately, 
we will experience opposition from individuals, from families, from governments, spiritual, physical oppression, but none of it will destroy us. Jesus makes clear repeatedly that none that the Father has given Him will ever be lost because of God's power they will receive the crown of glory. So let's ask, answer the final question. How does this all work? I mean, I think we want to know, okay, Jesus is praying that we would receive, that, he, he, that we would experience his joy, but how does this actually work? Look at verses 17 and 18. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So the word sanctify just means uh, set apart and preserved for special use. What are they set apart for? Life on mission for the glory of the Father. A life of countercultural obedience, verbal gospel witness for the glory of the Father and the good of the nations. And they are sanctified, he says, by the word which is truth. So according to John, which we, we see this throughout his gospel, Jesus is truth personified. Jesus is himself truth. And in the Holy Scriptures, in the Bible, we have this truth person's words and deeds. Now, there are a lot of truth claims out there, aren't there? In fact, we often hear all the time about my truth and your truth. Just share with them your truth, people say. The other night, Janine and Julie had both gone to bed, and I don't know, it was Wednesday night or Thursday night, I forget, and... Um, I wasn't really tired, so I wanted to stay up and watch TV. Janine and I almost never go to bed separately, but on this particular night we did. And, and so uh, I was surfing, trying to find something uh, to watch. There were no sports on TV, so I was uh, slightly depressed and uh, couldn't find anything to watch. So I ended up watching uh, what was called an historic television event. It was the first concert by Adele in years. Maybe you saw this um, it was actually pretty good. I mean, it was, it was pretty good and found myself at times uh, belting out some of the songs at the top of my lungs until I remembered everybody else was asleep. Um, but in between songs, they showed Adele being interviewed by Oprah. And what she really wanted to get at, and she just urgently pleaded with Adele to, is the, the, the nation, the world, we need to hear your truth. And this song, the, not that I expect you to care, but her most recent album was written based on a divorce she had gone through. And Oprah's saying, we need your truth. If there's anything we need, it's your truth. But the Word of God is not, it doesn't speak in those ways. Word of God doesn't talk about your truth and, and, and my truth and his truth and her truth. The scriptures, in the scriptures which are called the mind of God, we have true truth, we might say. The truth against which every other truth claim must be measured and to which every other truth claim must submit. Now you can see how this would spark opposition in the world. You would see how this would actually garner some hatred from other people. Think about the categories where people claim that truth is flexible and fluid and so on and how we might spark the vitriol of others. Think about the categories of gender and sexuality, marriage and family, vocation and justice, 
God's Word establishes what's true in all these areas and in every other area. But the Word of God was not given as a polemic against all the world's ways of thinking. In other words, we don't brandish the Bible as sort of fodder to prove all of our arguments. That's not why we were given it. The Word of God is given as the lifeblood of the believer, the sanctifying story of God's relentless love for sinners, the story in which all of our stories must fit. The Word of God tells us about this incredible salvation that we saw two weeks ago that that God and the Father and Son actually planned before the world was created. This plan to save an undeserving people like you and me. The, the, The Word of God is the story. It tells of a holy God who sent His Son to do what Adam and Israel and we have all failed to do. Honor God and obey Him completely. It tells of God's love and God's power and God's sovereignty and God's justice and God's wisdom and God's kindness and God's glory. And Jesus prays here that all His disciples would cultivate a love affair with God's Word as the only beacon of truth and the story of the person who is Himself truth. Uh, As a staff here at Capshaw, we... We, we meet weekly as a staff, and we, we read through books together, and we talk through them, and each and different people on staff will lead discussions on different weeks, and um, we do this in order to challenge ourselves and to make sure that we're anchoring our thoughts and our ministry plans and the Scriptures. Well, the book that we're reading right now is called Deeper uh, by Dane Ortland, and it's a phenomenal book. It's a terrific book. In the chapter we looked at last week, Ortland discussed the importance of taking in the Word of God. He actually equates it with breathing. He says we need God's Word like we need air. It is through God's Word that He refines us and encourages us, restores us, and keeps us. And to use Jesus' phrase here, it's through God's Word that He sanctifies us. He sets us apart. He prepares us and preserves us on mission. Orland writes in this book, As you seek to grow in Christ by becoming a deeper human, accept and embrace the truth that you will go uh, deeper with Christ no further than you go into Scripture. So if you're not in your Scripture regularly, if you're not regularly reading the Bible, you're not actually feeding your soul. Your soul, whether you realize it or not, is actually becoming malnourished. Now's the time to start. Now's the time to get in a rhythm. Now's the time to start that habit. Do it so when the new year hits, you're not starting cold. Go ahead and ramp up to the new year so that when the new year hits, you're already in this rhythm of reading the Scriptures. The goal is not to make sure you never miss a day. The goal is not to read the Bible so you can make God happy or check off your list or even feel good about yourself. The goal is to immerse yourself in that story so that you draw life and health and strength from it. If you miss a day, don't stress over it. I miss days. I'm a pastor. I miss days. If you miss a day, that's okay. But cultivate a pattern. Cultivate a rhythm. Just like you do with food. Get in the habit of feeding your soul. This is the fuel for experiencing Jesus' joy and hope for what's next. So as to our final question... How does this work? Here's the answer, our last point. Jesus' joy is mediated to us directly and indirectly. 
It comes from God's Spirit as we take in God's story. In God's story, we are reminded of the love of God. In God's story, we're reminded of God's faithfulness. Our faithlessness, His faithfulness. Our failures, His truth and His love. All the reasons that we have fallen short of God's standard of perfection, and yet the reason that He still approves of us and delights in us and loves us in Christ. And if we're not taking in the story... We're not reminding ourselves the way we need to be reminded of God's love and His mercy. We're not reminding ourselves of the very things that Jesus pointed to here, the certainty of our future glory and the present approval of the Father. Now, just in case you're inclined to believe that by reading the Bible, you can earn some standing with God, Jesus makes this incredible statement in the last verse of this section. Look at verse 19. And for their sake, he says, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So for their sake, that is to disciple the disciples, all of his disciples, the ones given to Jesus before the world was created, Jesus consecrated himself. That is, he dedicated himself, he set himself apart all the way to going to a cross where he would die for those same people, rebels wanderers, self-righteous, and fickle followers, hoisted on a cross, one theologian writes. He finished everything most important in the world. The revelation of God, the reconciliation of the world to God, the full atonement for human sin, the satisfaction of God's wrath, justice, and righteousness, and the defeat of the devil and death. Jesus' aim in all of this, in His consecrating work, so that his disciples would be sanctified in truth as they find their forgiveness and their meaning and their purpose and their approval and their identity in him alone. In other words, again, if you trusted in Christ this morning, if you turn from your sin, you're clinging to Jesus Christ and his work on the cross on your behalf, you are set apart. You are definitively sanctified. You belong to the Father And nothing will ever change that. You are His and He is yours. You have a glory prepared for you in the future that is far beyond anything you can imagine. And right now, presently, you stand approved by the Father. Not because of your goodness and your efforts, but because of His faithfulness. And it is a recognition of these things that will buoy you, that will be your joy. Now, if you've not turned in faith to Jesus... There's a reason that your joy is fleeting. There's a reason that you are up and down. There's a reason you feel the guilt and the shame and the burden and the weight to sort of make your way to God. But you'll never get there on your own. You'll never get there by working or striving or giving or serving or any other sacrifice you can make. But that joy awaits And that joy can be yours. That forgiveness can be yours by turning to a faithful and loving Father, by trusting in the work of Christ, the one who lived for us, died for us, was raised for us, and as we sang a few moments ago, is coming again for us. And nothing or no one can stop that because our Father is faithful. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask this morning you would 
increase our joy in you. We ask that you would help us to believe what we've heard Jesus say and pray. And we ask that you would stir our hearts and souls afresh with the reality, the truth of who you are and what you have done to save a sin-cursed and lost people. And Father, I want to pray this morning if there's someone, I can only imagine that in a room this size with as many people as are here, that there's someone here who doesn't know Christ. There's someone who's never turned, repented, and believed on Jesus Christ. And Father, I, I believe, we believe that you have the power to raise to life those who are dead in sin. We believe, we know you have the power to quicken the hearts of those who are spiritually dead. And Father, we're asking that you would do it this morning. Show yourself strong. Show yourself faithful. Remind us of your unchanging character today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.